Hebrews chapter 13 and the verse 12. As we prepare our minds to come to the table of the Lord and participate together in the feast thereon led for us by the Lord, I call you to consider with me these words found in verse 12. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Suffered to sanctify. The first thing that I draw your attention to is the name Jesus. The verse tells us that it is all about Jesus. That's not a surprise because that's what the whole epistle is about. It's about Jesus, it's about Christ, as is the whole of the Bible. All was about our dear Lord. And Paul, in showing to us the Saviour throughout this epistle, he has used a large reservoir or massive pool of names. So many names. He's many names, Jesus. And he has pulled out quite a few. And he often fishes out this name, Jesus. Sometimes with the word Lord, Lord Jesus. Sometimes with the word Christ, Jesus Christ. But occasionally, on its own, Jesus alone. And that's the way it is here. It's Jesus alone. Now, why does he do that from time to time? Why just take in the one name, this name, Jesus? Well, I think that one answer is that there is a sweetness in this name to the people of God. This name identifying his uniqueness. It's almost the poetic name, though the real name of our Lord. The poets are all often using this name, and especially whenever they write about Christ, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds they say, in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Another poet put it thus, the name of Jesus is so sweet, I love its music to repeat. It makes my joys full and complete, the precious name of Jesus. Jesus, oh how sweet the name Jesus, every day the same. Jesus, let all saints proclaim its worthy praise forever. And it's not just modern poets, but it's the ancient poets too, poets of the medieval times, such as Bernard. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills the breast. So it's the, if I may use that, it's the poetic name, It's the name that pulls our heartstrings. Jesus. Sweet Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing when he brings in the name alone. One of the things he's doing is he's pulling our heartstrings. And may it do that this morning. May the very name 
pull our heartstrings, this blessed Jesus. I think another reason he uses the name on its own is that he wants at this particular moment to emphasize the historical story. We have to read the four Gospels frequently, and we love to do so. But whenever we do so, it's nearly always this name, isn't it? Jesus said, Jesus answered, Jesus went about, Jesus saw, Jesus heard it. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Both Mary and Joseph were told. So it's, it's the gospel name, the historic name, the evangel name, the one that they're always using, the humble Jesus, the story that they tell us about of Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross and rose again and became Lord and Christ. So it's the name especially identifying him before his exaltation. Now I don't know if Paul had Matthew or Mark, but he knew the evangel. He knew the history. He knew the story. He knew about Jesus. And that's what he's doing here. He, he's telling us of that life that lived on earth. He's telling it in the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John tell it. Jesus suffered for the people. Above the cross it says, this is Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing. He's reverting to history. To Jesus, the pilgrim on earth. To Jesus, who is outside the city. He refers to being outside the city. To Jesus, who's crucified at the gate. He's bringing us from the right hand, from the throne of grace. He's bringing us down to the gates of the city. Jesus. He's bringing us back to the history. He's sounding like the evangel. And our salvation is an historic event. It's something that took place in time, space, our time, space world. Something that was wrought in the very fabric of the material creation in our world. This man, Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. History. Not imagination. Not philosophical thoughts merely. Not ideas. Not myth and fable. But this man, Jesus, suffered without the gate. True man. Though, of course, as we know, not mere man, Paul has already said us that he's Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever the eternal God. But for this verse, we're not, as it were, at God's right hand, where Christ sitteth. We're in the past, we're in Jerusalem, and we're at the gate where Christ suffered. Jesus. That's why he uses this name, Jesus. And the second thing is about this Jesus, our dear Lord, is he suffered. What does it say there? Jesus also that he may sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered. 
That's the key word. Mark it. Highlight it. Underline it. Now, in the Greek, they don't underline. They don't do that. But they arrange the words. This is the word at the end. Without the gate. Suffer. It's the highlighted word. It's the climax. It's the main thing about this Jesus. He suffered. He did. What do we need to know about the historic Jesus? Many things. But what Paul wants us to know, what he wants us to reflect upon, what he wants us never to forget, and we're coming to the Lord's table in the light of this sermon, and this is why we've prepared it as we approach the table of the Lord Jesus later on. This is the main thing. He suffered. Now, of course, we all suffer, don't we? The world is a world of suffering. We're born to suffer, and Jesus is no different. He entered into a world of suffering. Even atheists ask, why does everybody suffer? Even they know it. And Jesus is no different. He's born into a world of suffering and he suffers as we suffer. He's a man that suffered as you are men and women that suffered. Four times in this epistle, the apostle uses the verb suffered in relation to Christ. He suffered being tempted. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So it's it's thing in Paul's mind often He suffered. And I'm not going to paint his sufferings. You know the gospel accounts yourself. They're all there. He suffered intensely. Impalement on the cross is awful, agonizing, a slow way of dying. He suffered beyond anything we suffer. Beyond compare. He is preeminently in this whole world Of all men that have suffered, he is preeminently the man of sorrows. The man acquainted with grief. He says, I am poor and sorrowful. He said to his disciples, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. He said... All ye that pass by, is it nothing to you? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me. He suffered immensely, terribly, preeminently, above all others. The third thing that we emphasize, not only the name, and that he suffered. I want to emphasize that he suffered unto death. That he suffered as one dying. He died a suffering death. And that's important for our salvation. The mystery of Calvary, of the atonement. Our Savior had to die suffering. Agonizing. It was fundamental to our reconciliation to God. It was needful. The whole life of Christ, of course, was a life of suffering. But you'll notice that the apostle 
is highlighting the intensity of the suffering at the cross. He's not just saying Jesus suffered 33 years, though that is true. He's not bringing us back to the 33 years. He's thinking about his death at the time of his atonement on the cross. He's thinking of those six hours. How do we know? Because, well, there are several things that tell us that. But first of all, it says, without the gate. He suffered without the gate. He's thinking of Calvary. He's thinking of Golgotha. He's thinking of those six hours outside the wall. He's clearly referring to the place of Christ's execution. He's referring to a literal gate. Like the gospel history. He bearing his cross went forth onto a place called the place of a skull. Golgotha where they crucified him. So he's referring to Christ's death on the cross. All that's taking place at the gate. He suffered at the gate. At the other side of it too. He suffered there. Paul's referring to that. And then the second thing that brings that out is not only the place, but the mention of the blood. Verse 12. Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. So again, Paul is thinking about the cross. He's not thinking about the, the, the persecution and all the hard times during his life and the rejection, as it were, by Israel. But he's thinking of the time upon the cross when he's dying and shedding his blood. There's the blood shedding, his dying suffering, his sacrifice of himself. The Lord's death was a terrible suffering death. He didn't just die. He died an agonizing suffering death. He died a violent death, unspeakably awful, indescribably painful, at the gate. Jesus at the gate. The long six hours impaled to the cross with all that accompanied that. We may not know. We cannot tell what pains he had to bear. But he bore them. He suffered. He died. And then the third thing that indicates this death the suffering and death unto death is the wherefore also. You have to carefully attend to every word of Scripture. And there's this wherefore also. And that brings us to the verse that is past, verse 11. What do we read there? We read about bodies. Bodies of beasts. Beasts that had been slain. Beasts whose blood was poured out. Whose blood was obtained. And the blood was brought into the, the holy place. But the bodies were taken out outside the gate. And they were burned. The bodies were burned. Wherefore also Jesus outside the gate. As he pours out his blood. 
as he fulfills all those shadows, all those beasts, all those but images, all those but the pictures, until the substance comes Christ. And the substance in history comes later, but the substance in reality is in eternity past in the mind of God, and the images come out of that before that, picturing that, foreshadowing that, the images come out of the mind of God for us to behold, but behind that is the substance in the mind of God, which in the fullness of time comes and fulfills the shadows. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the one who suffered outside the gate from the foundation of the world in the mind of God. Everything comes out of the mind of God. All the reality that we see, and especially the reality of the death of Jesus Christ, he fulfills all in his death and sacrifice. He's the completion, and he is the one who suffered thus unto the end. So that's what the apostle is saying here. He died historically at Jerusalem's gate, an agonizing death. But why? Why? Why was this needful? Did he die as all men die? Just in ordinary providence? Just, you know, it's just life, you know, we die? No. His suffering and death was different. There was purpose in it. There was design in it. And so I draw your attention to the words that he might. That's purpose. That's design. He suffered. He died. Wherefore also burned at the gate. That he might. That he might do something. That he might fulfill something. That he might bring a design and a plan and a purpose to pass. And that purpose is sanctification that he might sanctify the people Jesus was born and he suffered and died for a purpose and the apostle describes that purpose as sanctifying the people now that's not true of everybody else's suffering We all suffer in relation to our own sins. We all suffer because we're sinners born in a fallen world. But Jesus came into the world. He chose to suffer. He voluntarily took suffering that he might. That he might. There's so much in that expression that he might. He suffered and died for us. That's the unique thing about Christ's suffering. His suffering is redemptive. His suffering restores that which is lost. His suffering regenerates. His suffering brings us out of this terrible old into the new. Redemptive suffering, saving suffering, sanctifying suffering. We have no choice about our suffering. We often suffer for our own sins, but he suffers not for his own sins, but for ours. 
His suffering is not run-of-the-mill suffering. They are vicarious sufferings. He gave himself. He suffered for our salvation. You see that Christ's suffering had purpose and design. By, by looking at verse 11, I, I emphasize the word, the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin. He's burned at the gate for sin. His blood is shed for sin. Our sin. Our sin. Now notice the description of them that he suffered for. How does Paul describe them? That he might sanctify the people. The people. He suffered for a people. And what people is this? And why does Paul choose this word people? He has in mind the name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he saved the people from their sin. What people is that? His people. The people that he has and loves. His people. The word people in the singular, and Paul uses it a number of times in this epistle, and it's always in the singular. It's not peoples. His people are not peoples. Yes, they come from all kinds of peoples. But he makes them his people. And a people is something that has something common. Something that brings them together. Something that gives them a similar identity. Something that gives them similar spiritual, what I may call spiritual DNA. Something in common. The people. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So Paul has in mind here this Christ Jesus at the gate suffering shedding his blood to sanctify the people. And Jesus is the high priest. And the high priest he brings the beast out. The high priest manipulates the blood. The high priest deals with the sacrifice. The high priest is toward God and Jesus is the high priest for the people. Just as the high priest is the high priest of the people. He does it for the people. The people of Israel as it is in the high priest in, in the Old Testament times. And he has his, on his shoulders plates with the names of the people. And he has on his breastplate the twelve stones the people, the people are upon his breast, the people are upon his shoulders. He makes intercession for the people. He offers a sacrifice for the people. Always the people. Of course, the Old Testament priest had to include himself among that for himself and for the people. But Jesus comes. He's, he's the fulfillment. In the fullness of time, the substance, the people. The people on his breast. The people he bears on his shoulders. The people that he intercedes for at God's right hand. That he wants to sanctify. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The people. The people of God. 
And so Paul is saying, it's all for the people. And this is a new covenant people, of course. It's not just Jews. Bless God. We Gentiles have been grafted in now as well to be the people, the people of God. The Lord said, I'll make a covenant with the house of Israel. I put my laws in their heart. I write it in their minds. I'll be to them a God. They'll be to me a people, a people. And as we come to the table today, we remember the covenant. We remember the body outside the gate, sacrifice and the bloodshed. And we come as a people. We have a common identity, brethren and sisters. We're in the family of God. We have the same interests. We're dwelt by the same spirit. We abide in the same house of God. We're fed by the same word of God. We're a people who have unity and harmony. And we're in Christ. And he's our brother, he's your elder brother and our Lord, the people. What a lovely word, the people. Better to be the people of God than to be the people of Ulster, or the people of Ireland, or the people of the United Kingdom. The people of God. He loved us and he gave himself for us. He is our peace. He's made both one Jew and Gentile. And we're now, the, the middle wall of partition is gone and we're now the people of God. So this is what he died for. Are you his people? Have you faith in him? Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Of course this all flows from God's election, doesn't it? His chosen people, elect of all peoples, elect of every nation, the people of God. So you're his people by faith and trust in him. And it's his death, his death, that makes us his people, his sanctified people, to bring us unto God. And nothing else will do that, congregation. Nothing else will make us righteous. Nothing else will make us holy. Nothing else will take us out of the bondage of sin but his suffering and death. So he died to save us. Purpose. He died to make us holy. He died to make us good. He died to bring us to glory. To everlasting eternal rest. To enter into all, all the fullness of the eternity that is before us as his people ever with him, our Lord. Sanctify. Sanctify them. So this morning we're reflecting on the sufferings of Jesus in order to emphasize his love. Not just a history lesson, but that he might, that reveals purpose, as I said. And we have to see what's behind that purpose. And what fire is in that purpose. And the fire is the fire of love. Love. He loved us. And gave himself for us. So see the love of God at the gate. The burning 
fervent love of the Saviour going through the fire. As the bodies of those beasts were burned outside the gate, so Jesus goes through the fire to get his bride. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it. You, you will know that marriage, which has come out of the mind of God as well, is just an image. Behind that is something far more. He has in mind, what is marriage? Marriage is Christ and his bride. That's what marriage is. But in the creation of the reality of the world, God has put that into the fabric of creation. So we have marriage. But the real mystery is the mystery of Christ and his bride. And he suffers for his bride. That's why his side was opened. His bride came out of his side. He suffered for her. He suffered the pangs of birth for her. Women know how terribly painful bearing a child is. And as terribly painful as that is, it's nothing like the birth pains of Jesus Christ as he bore forth his bride. He suffered for us at the gate because he loved us. Christ loved the church. And that's what we have to remember, brethren and sisters. Because only that wins us. Only that melts us. Only that enables us to overcome that when we are constrained by the love of Christ. And so you see what you are to become, child of God. Didn't we say this in New Year's Day? Let's try to emphasize what we are to become. And Jesus suffered and died for us to sanctify the people. To make us what we are to become. Without sin, with complete holiness and likeness unto him. It's his death and suffering that accomplishes that. And so to him be all the glory of this great salvation. And let us this morning remember his love. Let us remember the death, the suffering, the agony, the purpose, and the love behind it all. And let us come to his table and let us endeavour to love him. And let us pray that this table may be another means to that end that has been obtained for us by the suffering of Christ, that this table might be a, a means of sanctification to us so that when we have communion in it with the body and blood of Christ, we may grow onto his fullness and become like him. So may the Lord bless us as we come soon to his table. For his great name's sake. Amen.